I first met Key at the Co-Root dining table in Seoul. I've met so many interesting people at that table. Key looked me in the eye, introduced himself, and reached over to shake my hand. Back then, as now, there was something genial and graceful in his manner, perhaps stemming from his childhood in the American South. He was softly spoken, yet assured. Unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to hang out then, but years later, we met up in Tokyo when I was desperate for a break from Korea and everything it was bringing up for me. Key's reputation preceded him. I'd read a few of his articles for the food magazine Lucky Peach, and I'd heard from friends of friends, this was the person to see if you wanted to eat well in Tokyo. I didn't know anyone in Japan, but Key took me under his wing. I tried my best to keep up as my bespectacled guide led me briskly through the back streets of the city. Night after night, there were dinners and drinks with different assortments of local friends and visitors. It didn't matter that I was a stranger. During my brief stint in Tokyo, I was welcome. I became one of the family. Oh man, I ate so well that week. Fat, creamy crab croquettes alongside mounds of silky sashimi. Chicken liver yakitori and hot buttered long-fingered roast potatoes washed down with copious oolong highs. And fluffy soy-based cake donuts fresh out of the fryer from a little stand outside an obscure train station around midnight. That trip was one of the great food adventures of my life. The American food writer M.F.K. Fisher believed that eating well was one of the arts of life. Since we must eat to live, she wrote, we might as well do it with both grace and gusto. Key is an artist. He has perfected the art of eating and dining together. Somehow, Key manages to juggle his day job with freelance writing and photography projects, as well as, pre-COVID times, a busy schedule of dining and showing people around, fueled only by the bottled green tea which he always keeps in his bag. How do you do it? I asked. I don't really sleep, he replied. I, however, have not been blessed with the same stamina. I was fighting a cold during that trip, but a cold, I swore to myself, was not going to hold me back from eating well in Tokyo. So I pushed through. But eventually, it caught up with me. It caught up with me on the bullet train from Tokyo to Kyoto when I fell asleep and woke up somewhere near Hiroshima, hundreds of kilometers south of my planned destination. Of course, I'd gladly do it all again. And I look forward to our next meal together, friend. You're listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. A bit about today's guest, Ki Byung-kun or Clayton Franks. These are just two of the names given, but there are no doubt more that remain unknown, even elusive. But they are names occupied in the same way that a renter occupies one house in one city and a different one in another. They are just temporary abodes, addresses really, so that bills and correspondences can be sent and received. The four walls in a stove that belong to either name do not allude much to the life lived within. Born in Seoul sometime in 1984 and sent away to the United States soon thereafter, Key was raised in the rural American South in the land of myth that the locals call Louisiana. Long before the nascent upwelling of a broader Korean-American identity, this place far beyond the village of an ethnic enclave was not the most hospitable environment for a small life from the other side of the ocean. 
Even that ocean was somewhere far away. The garden of inequities that America grows for its immigrants needs not be listed here, and so life was in a word, hard. But at the time, there was no other life that he could live, but the food was good at least. Many years and many wrong turns later, Key made his way to Tokyo, where he still resides. Before the onset of the pandemic, it was easiest to find him at one of the city's many tables. A firm believer in the idea of too much being just the right amount, he would often be seen going over a menu with the same scrutiny that most reserve for the morning paper. And while this life is on hold for now, he still surfaces from time to time, aimlessly wandering through a grocery store, relishing his role as another anonymous character in the endless theater of the Japanese capital. Though at his apartment, mail now arrives addressed to both of his names. So, thank you so much for coming on our podcast, Key. I actually, I've been meaning to ask you for a long time, but I was kind of, I wasn't sure if you were interested. So, I just, <laughs> yeah, I was just like kind of nervously waiting <laughs> for like no, a year or for, something. <laughs> thank you for having me. So, let's just jump into our uh, deep and intrusive questions. <laughs> <laughs> I get a free extra therapy session this week. This is great. <laughs> um, we don't usually start our adoptee interviews with questions about childhood because we think it's a bit cliched, to be honest, uh, or yeah. I do. But can you tell us a little bit about, <laughs> about what it was like growing up in rural Louisiana in the deep American South? Oh, man. That... It's not so much an intrusive question, it's just a really big question because, I mean, it's like where, I don't know where do you even start. I mean, I guess just kind of jumping right in the middle of it, like, you know, to demonstrate the, just the kind of like the numerical situation of it in my high school, you know, to underscore how much of a, a minority and a rarity I was, like in my high school, I was one third of the Asian population. Oh, wow. Right. Meaning there were two others. That was it. And they were cousins from Laos or something. We didn't, we didn't actually have anything to do with each other at all. Um, and that was in high school. In from, But for most of my, like, elementary education, I was the only Asian, period. You know, there might be one or two come and go, but um, it was mostly just me. Um, and I did not meet <clears throat> another Korean until, well, I think there was a girl in grade school that would kind of come and go, but, you know, we weren't really friends or anything. Um, the first Korean who I had a quote-unquote relationship with that I got to know was an older uh older woman that run a small grocery store in the city where I grew up in the area where I grew up. And, um, <clears throat> I got to know her, but I think I was like in 17, 18 years old is when I finally met her. And, but then she was the only one for many, many years. I mean, I don't think I even had a proper Korean meal until I was in my twenties and living in Seattle. So there's all these like long kind of time stamps to illustrate. It's kind of like deep space time, you know, the time dilation. Sorry, I apologize. I read a little bit too much science fiction and watch too much science <laughs> science fiction anime these days. Um, <clears throat> so I tend to talk like a you know dime store textbook. But um, it was you know there was no one there. There was no one there like me. There was no one there who 
looked like me, um, who um, there was no one who shared my experience in any way, shape, or form. My existence, quite frankly, existed beyond the scope of the local imagination. Mm. You know, talking to my my mother, my adoptive mother, at some point, this is many years ago now, and this is one of the few moments of clarity she actually had about all this, where she said, your life exists largely beyond our worldview. Like, your world is just bigger than ours. And we do our best, but we, we just can't see it. You know, <clears throat> that said, that was very late in the game, and it would have been helpful if she'd had that realization about 10 or 15 years earlier. Um, but, you know, those are kind of just to, those are the stakes at hand. That said, not to just play my, like, sad violin for two hours here, it's, um, <clears throat> the American South is a really beautiful place, especially Louisiana. Actually, can I qualify that? Louisiana is a really beautiful place. I really don't know what goes on in Mississippi or Alabama, and Florida is just a mistake in general. Um, but Louisiana is actually a really beautiful place, and the you know, it does have very wonderful like people and culture that is indigenous to the state. The food is amazing. And I credit largely that growing up in that Louisiana food culture with my kind of lifelong love of food, mm-hmm. enduring love of food. Mm-hmm. I think that's where it generates. So you've written about um, cooking with your adoptive grandmother. Is that right? Yeah, it's not so much that I cooked with her, but I learned a lot by watching her cook. Um, Mm. um, I picked up a lot of things from her is what that comes from. And certain certain meals and things like that, certain things that go together. Do you think you've always loved food for as long as you can remember? Yes. I think I... (laughs) You know, I was talking about something like this yesterday about trying to kind of recall an episode from my childhood and it's like this is it's kind of a specious activity because I'm answering this through like a 36-year-long lens of, you know, experiences. And so I think I always loved food. But yeah, when I was a kid, I was really picky though. I like to eat, but I like to eat weird things, you know, like, like, what? like, a, you know, there's like basic stuff. Like I always wanted to eat like spaghetti and tomato sauce, but like, I really loved, um, burnt hot dogs. Mm. And when I say this, I mean, I take a hot dog, like an American, like hot dog, I'd burn it on the stove and then just eat the black part. Oh. I didn't like the middle. I'd eat it like a corn cob, like, <laughs> and then just discard like the inside. I like the carbon. I don't know. I liked burnt food when I was a kid. <laughs> Still like burnt food. There's a little. There's there's more sophistication about it now. You know, you got char and Maillard reactions. You know. Yeah, now we call it a Mayad reaction, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Caramelization. I like deep caramelization of my flavors. Can I ask if, if um, you recall the first 
meal that you learn how to cook with your adoptive grandmother? Huh. That's a good question. I, I think it's, it's a little like, it's a circle back on itself. Like I, I started cooking and I, I was trying to make this dish called shrimp Creole, which is kind of like a very spicy tomato based shrimp stew from uh, Southern Louisiana. And I had made a cookbook version and I, it was different than the version that I grew up with that she made. And so at some point I watched her make it and then I took, you know, her technique and then the technique I had learned from the book and like blended them together to kind of arrive at the way that I make it now. Um, mm. And a lot of cooking was like that. There's a lot of stuff my grandma cooked. It was, you know, I never learned how to make like homemade biscuits or actually even like gumbo um pies is most of the stuff she made i never really learned i never went like momo how do you make this it was never like that it was kind of just like watching and inference inference and stuff um and then there was a lot of stuff she made that i didn't like too so (laughs) just to be be frank (laughs) momo was not someone who knew how to make spaghetti for example so I always remember she made it. It was the, just like the thinnest, most watery sauce. I don't even know how she did it, but it was just not good. Yeah, roast chicken also left a lot to be desired. But you know, she grew up in the Depression, so that she had a different picture of some foods and what they're supposed to be. So, how would you describe yourself as a child, looking back now? I work with kids as my day job. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I work in kind of like an after-school care um, here in Tokyo. And I'm always trying to imagine, like, which one of these kids am I most like? And actually, I can never actually arrive at the answer because our contexts are so, so different. Um, where they're Japanese, by and large, they're growing up inside Japan, They've never left. They've never had to live in a situation where they're the minority, where they were kind of put out in any way, where they were in, in kind of anything less than like they were supposed to be there. They've never lived in that situation where they had to be challenged like that. And so I realized that kind of adversity has, you know, shaped shaped my childhood, you know, in, into and formed me into a way that was into a possibility that is unrecognizable or kind of difficult to arrive at through someone who just grows up here or by extension who just grows up in Korea and never has the, never has their like selfhood, their personhood challenged, especially on a daily basis. Right. Um, so, but as a child, I was pretty quiet, um, you know, always kind of private, quiet, kind of a loner, um, you know, didn't have many friends. It was kind of socially, socially awkward. But you know, it wasn't sad per se. I just tended to just be able to entertain myself. So it's like, just leave me with like video games, and I'm fine. Which is still true. <laughs> Did you read a lot as a child? Not really, actually. Hmm. I didn't start reading until maybe. I was an older child, like late middle school. I read a lot of like fantasy books, and then I started reading fiction throughout high school. Um, but yeah, as a young child, there were always books around, but and I always read like kids' books. But 
I was a child who was a reader. Again, I like to play video games. <laughs> the struggle still exists too. Like I only have so many hours at night to do things, and it's like, do I read a book or do I play video games? Probably gonna play video games. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're gonna talk about this uh, later, but mm. uh, do you did you have an interest in writing when you were a child? When you were younger? No. <laughs> oh wow. Not not as a young child. The idea of a, a writer as a thing. I think that kind of didn't occur until like I was probably in university age. I always like like to journal and like write for myself. Ever since I was like in probably middle school on up, around that age, I would kind of just do it for myself. But it never occurred to me that that was a thing I wanted to be. I was still like thinking I'd be an artist, just because I that was a more like dominant feature of my like childhood but it was a long time before the writing kind of took precedence over that um mm. a really long time actually so so one in, in one of your articles mm-hmm. you wrote as a child i was beat up for my eyes and my skin i was dirty ugly and unwanted i had been force fed a hatred for myself by a world that was willing to buy my body but not respect it. Every action of every day had become an act of defence. I could never be without my armour because vulnerability was not something I could afford. So firstly, I, I relate, I really relate to that sense of building up an armour, you know, growing up in like a rural white area. And I was wondering now... Do you think that armor is something that you still do you, that you still wear? Um, do you think vulnerability hmm. is still a difficult thing? That's that's interesting. Um, I think that armor I had to wear as a childhood has been largely put aside by coming back to East Asia and settling in Japan and Tokyo. Um, I don't remember exactly where that passage is that you just read, where that falls along my like personal chronology. But um, I remember when I first went back to Seoul the first time about, I guess it's been about 10 years now, that first night I remember this kind of like lightness and it felt like that kind of accreted kind of armor was melting off of me. Mm-hmm. And it was the most liberating feeling I'd ever felt. I was like, oh my God. So this is what it's supposed to feel like. I I never felt anything like that in my life. I didn't know. And to be sure, it, it that feeling was a little bit fleeting and it didn't last forever. But I do have a powerful sense of it still. But, you know, in over the next several years after going back to Seoul the first time, I went back and forth between America and South Korea and, you know, I would disarm in South Korea in a way and then have to rearm myself as I went back to America. Mm. But that said, like I couldn't walk around South Korea in Seoul either without having my defenses up because while you're that armor that you built up around yourself in America is about, you know, racism and prejudice and not belonging and alienation, you know, in South Korea, it's in Seoul, you have, 
that that's the site of trauma, right? That's ground zero. And so you have your, def- you end up putting your defenses up against other things against kind of the stimuli or the residuals of what remains of an unprocessed or unknown kind of specter from your past, which is as significant, if not more significant than the armor used for the thing. And see, it's not always about putting aside your armor and being free and liberated completely, but maybe one day in life that is something you achieve and I'm just not there yet. But it's also like, I felt like I was just, I trade sets in, mm-hmm. in, you know, and to speak to the third location, to the third place of being in Japan, like it's not as heavy because I feel like I can disappear into the city very effectively. Um, I'm not beholden to a sense of being Korean here because no one knows and also because it's because no one knows I'm Korean. This isn't Korea. This is Japan. I'm not Japanese. I'm not going to be Japanese. And so I don't need to try to be Japanese. It's mm-hmm. not important to try to fulfill that role. Whereas, you know, as you both know, like in Seoul, it's like, I am Korean. I don't know how to be Korean, but I feel a sense of obligation to try to like play this role because it is a part of who I am, even if I don't understand this part at all. And so you have all this like kind of like dissonance and like, internal chaos trying to like ratchet between these points where in, for me personally in Japan, like I don't feel that because it's just like, well, that's not who I am and I have mm-hmm. to be, and it's fine, but I can disappear as an Asian person in an Asian society. And as long as I, you know, maintain the facade of it, then no one knows. And if you detect like a little bit of performative action in there, you absolutely, it absolutely does exist. I'm not going to say that like it's not without its own burdens or challenge or kind of complications because they definitely exist as well. Um, I remember actually when I first um, spent some longer time living in Korea um, and I had a lot of angst <laughs> and anger towards Korea and Korean people. Um, and it was, yeah, it was always such a relief to go and visit Japan for, for mm-hmm. very similar mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. After that first trip back to Korea, you went back to the US mm-hmm. and then at some point in your late 20s or uh, you decided to leave the US and you, and you had the sense at that point that that it might be forever. Hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about that decision and preparing to leave? Preparing to leave America forever? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a lot less, it was actually pretty simple. I, mm. I was done. I was finished. There was no point to be there anymore. I had no career going forward. I had no partner. I had no, you know, my, there's just really no reason to be there. There was no future there. Zero. And I was like, why am I going to stay here if I know I don't want to be here? I thought at the time I wanted to be in Korea because that was all the only taste I had of it. Um, Because, you know, as hard as it was, that just felt more right. And so I was like, well, I'm going to go back to ground zero and start over again. And I just, I left. 
you know, there were like a one or two false starts, but I made my preparations. I rid myself of most of my earthly belongings and I got on the airplane and left. And I went to Korea and I was there for three months and about a month in, like I realized, I don't know if this is actually gonna be the best fit. And then there was like, what am I going to do? Like, do I go back? Like, do I, I don't know. So I took some time off while I was there in Seoul at time to like go visit some friends I have here in Tokyo. And I'd never been. I thought, well, I might as well go visit because I've always wanted to go. And I've never been. And when am I, if I leave Korea now, I don't know when I'll come back to East Asia again. It might be a long time. So let's just do this while it's close. Um, mm. So I hopped over here for two weeks and about, 15 minutes in I was like where do I sign <laughs> this this is actually everything I was looking for in the first place I wanted this yeah please don't make me leave and go back anywhere else like I want to be here mm. and so from that point on it's just been an endeavor it was an endeavor over the course of it took about a almost a year from first getting first seeing it first visiting to like get all the paperwork and everything together and get the job and everything to come back and to be here and then now I've been here now for six and a half years. And yes, it is forever. America sucks. <laughs> Why would you want to live it? Why would you want to live there? This sucks. <laughs> In preparation for this interview, I um, reread some of your articles for Lucky Peach magazine. Um, <laughs> And, yes, so in your article, uh, The Last Meal in the Holy City, mm-hmm. I got that right, mm-hmm. um, you talk about this this epic day of eating at all your favourite spots in New mm-hmm. Orleans, right, with your, yeah. um, with your friends, mm-hmm. which sounds kind of both amazing and, and physically painful. <laughs> <laughs> Did it really go down that way? Did you really eat that much in one day? (laughs) I mean, I can imagine your friends, like, surely they were just dropping like flies, you know, throughout the day. Let me just tell you that not only is it real, it happened more than once. (laughs) The last time we did it was really just... Yeah, just like we want to do this one more time again. No, yeah, there really was that much kind of that, that much food, and there are people out there who could attest to this. <laughs> I, I I have hurt people. <laughs> like it's yeah, it's it's very real. People people would say like, "Can you bring us to New Orleans?" Because we know like you have like this like you know some really good places, and we'd really love to kind of go eat around the city. And they'd ask me this, and I'd just say like. Are you sure? <laughs> I want you to understand this is not a joke. It's very serious. And you might, it might be uncomfortable. Like, no, no, we really want to do it. It's like, sure. Okay. If you say you want to do it, we'll do it. And invariably, you know, about an hour after lunch, they'd be like in the back of the car, like, oh, <laughs> I tried to tell you. I tell you, yeah, no, it's real. It's awesome. I miss it. I, I miss it a lot. Um, 
the food in New Orleans is extraordinarily special. You, you don't get cooking like that anywhere else. And we really did eat like that. I mean, I do that still here in Tokyo, too, <laughs> to be sure. It depends on who I'm with, which version or which level of terribleness, you know, gets inflicted. But, like, Matt Blessy, <laughs> our, our dear, beloved friend, Matt Blessy, you know, you can ask him, like, I, I hurt Matt Blessy. I hurt, I hurt. He still talks about it, like, I have never been so happy and in so much pain at the same time in my life as when I was eating with you in Tokyo. Cause it was like, it was like three days of it. It's like, it, you know, you've done it with me too a little bit. It, it drags out. <laughs> yeah. You have to um, properly prepare your body for it. <laughs> and you know, the terrible thing is people have to prepare for that. But for me, it's just normal life. <laughs> When I was reading over what what you what you shared, I had a lot of favorite lines from that piece. It was a really, really beautiful piece, by the way. Oh, thank, um, thank you so much. Um, and I, yeah, I got this. I, I wrote a few down actually, and I, I kind of wanted. To, this is a very. This is not even a question. It's like really poorly formed thought, but um, you know, you write. I don't have time to be full. Um, each bite is just another goodbye. And yeah, that sort of desperate almost like this desperate consuming knowing that you're you're gonna leave and but the repetition as well of, mm-hmm. um yeah like kind of slowing that whole process down into each bite um mm-hmm. and then as you say you actually did that with your friends multiple times and yeah I was kind of yeah wondering if you I don't know could speak a bit more about about that time and mm-hmm. um how food was such a big part of leaving i guess i mean to go back a few beats to build up to that it's like you know food food especially in my 20s really became like the anchor point for my identity i think um i would both both as someone who loved to eat like in restaurants but also back then i was i was cooking a lot more at home for friends and like at least once or twice a week they would all come over to the house and i'd cook like a you know, big dinner and we'd eat and we drink together. And this is a very regular part, both of my life and then the people I lived around too. Um, you know, it's kind of like a, it was a weekly expectation that it would happen. And, you know, food was just, you know, always something that brought people together. And it's something I always enjoyed being the host. Um, you know, today I, I don't cook at home anymore for people because I live in Tokyo and my apartment's just too small for that. Um, and but I still host dinners outside, um, and you know they get to be very big sometimes. You know sometimes it'll be a smallish affair, like three or four people, and sometimes I'll just roll through my like contacts, and you know just well, let's see how many people we can catch at one time, and it'll be like twenty five, thirty people show up for dinner, and what we'll like reserve like the top floor of like a restaurant or something, but it's it's the best. You know, we go up there for three or four hours and we eat and we drink and we drink some more. And then after that, there's food and also more drinking. And it's wonderful. It's the best thing in the world. And it's something that 
in the current era, I deeply, deeply miss. Mm. So I say all that to say that, you know, obviously food is extraordinarily important. But when I was leaving, I knew that those things I was having, for one, they were going to be the last time that I had a lot of those things, a lot of those foods, a lot of those flavors for a very long time, maybe forever, you know, because again, like I said, like, I have no intention of going back. I recognize that forever is only as long as you let it be. But unless someone makes me, I probably won't darken that doorstep anytime soon. Um, so a lot of those things that, you know, I love, and I loved really deeply, purely, like in the very kind of unconditional sense of love for some of these like restaurants, some of these foods and food ways that we have in Southern Louisiana. But I recognize that in order to change other parts of my life that were not working, that were indeed suffering a great deal, that unless I took dramatic action, um, I would have to sacrifice a lot of those things in order to fix something that was a bit more deep than that. Um, you know, it also doesn't hurt that I really love the food here. and Japan has a beautiful food culture as well. Um, you know, I'm not allowed to complain about that because, <laughs> like, for God's sakes, I live in Tokyo. Everyone wants to come eat in Tokyo, right? So, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was giving up a limb, but I was having to let go of some things that had been important to me for a long time in my life. Still think about it. Still think about it a lot. You know, I'd, I'd give anything for a couple like Angela Bricotta's ice cream or, you know, a fried shrimp pull boy. There's a lot of things I miss, but that's the cost and consequence of change. Um, in another one of your pieces, you wrote, um, I can recognize the world as described by Tennessee Williams and A.J. Liebling, but it has never been my own. Even if I were to persist here another 50 years, it is likely that it never would. Is that something else that you were aware of as you were um, leaving the U.S., um, a sense that, that it felt like a borrowed country in your words? Oh, yeah. I mean, it never felt like mine, ever, ever. I always get offended when people would say, like, Especially, you know, especially here, it's like, oh, like, well, you're American. I'm like, no, guys, I, I just used to live there. Like, mm. it's not American. It's not something you. It's not automatic. You don't just get to be American. You know, the great, great Toni Morrison writes, being American means being white. Everyone else has to hyphenate. It's very much the case. Like, there was never a moment in my life, no matter what age you want to kind of examine, there were no times when I felt like I belonged. It just never happened. Not once, not ever. Not to this day. You know, I mean, I think some people ask questions and they, like, you know, what was it like to leave? And, you know, it's like a really big decision. I'll be honest with you, it really wasn't. I was... I wanted to leave. I wanted to be away from it because the attachment was frail, tenuous, because it was never really mine to begin with. And it never, 
in spite of many years of trying, it never became mine. <clears throat> so, Clash just said goodbye. That's it. As you know, we were both born in the same year and yes. actually <laughs> we both returned to Korea like right around the same time because uh, I went back for the first time in October 2010 and mm-hmm. yeah, and you in November 2010, right? I think it might have been 2009. I always forget, but yes. Oh, okay. Okay. Math is getting a little rusty. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to talk a little bit more about about that first trip back, um, mm-hmm. could we start by asking you to read the uh, the opening of a piece that you wrote about it? Sure. Okay. Let me hydrate. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> How do I begin to tell you what it felt like to go back? I spent every day of my life up to that point dreaming of my homeland. I populated it with every fantasy imaginable. It would be there that I would be safe. It would be there that I would be loved. It would be there that I would finally feel sheltered from the torturous storms of my youth. I believed, truly believed, that it would bring an end to the ceaseless longing that had haunted my entire life. I thought that, for the first time, I would find a people among who I would belong. I thought that I would find my family and the litany of questions I had carried with me throughout the years since I was sent away would finally be answered. It was the last and really only great hope of my life. After all those years of manning the farthest outposts of alienation, I was going to return home. I hungered for a taste of what home was supposed to be. I wanted to savor the salt of Koreanness on my tongue to roll these emotions around my mouth and feel the satisfaction of being belonging trip down the walls of my heart. At that point, I had lived so many lives as so many different people and I desired to be only myself. I would slip past the flaming sword into my own private Eden. I would eat the overripe fruit of my history and be free of the lonely wilderness. Of course, dreams are a poor substitute for reality. And when I finally returned to Seoul after a lifetime away, I would discover just how foolish my dreams had been. Thank you. You're welcome. I wonder, you know, in essence, if that's what many of us as adoptees are hoping to find um, going back for the first time, but basically like to go home. You know, I feel like you, um, you describe it so beautifully, but also distill it to its essence, or at least I can relate. (laughs) (laughs) Everyone wants to go home, right? I remember... It was after the great earthquake and tsunami here in 2011. I wasn't living here at the time, but everyone remembers it happening because it's you know it's global news. But um, I remember reading in the New York Times they were interviewing a woman from Fukushima, and you know she said very simply, very poignantly, everyone 
needs a hometown. Everyone wants somewhere they can go back to. I think there's an old, like, Korean, like, saying, and I, I don't know how to say it in Korean, but I know the translation is, the fox always goes home to die. And, yeah. I've been out here for a long time, and I've been looking and searching and hoping, hoping beyond hope, as it were, mm-hmm. and I haven't found it yet. Get close sometimes. I'm not there yet. I like to think I am, but I'm not there yet. And yeah, everyone wants to go home. Everyone wants to feel, it's because it's not about, it's about more than that. It's about not just shelter, but safety. Everyone wants that place where they feel safe, where they finally know that it's okay here. You don't have to worry right now. You can take that armor off. Mm. You can put down your sword. You, you can take your defenses down and you can relax because here you're going to be protected. You're going to be safe. And beyond that, you're going to be understood. Mm-hmm. But I think we know that for someone who has lived the life that we've lived, those things, safety, security, being understood. Well, those are some of the most exotic things in the universe to the point where it's like, what is that? I have heard of that, but I, for the life of me, don't know what that is. Mm. Sounds nice. Sounds great, but never seen it in my life. It's a place I have not been. You know that um, third, that third element being understood. I'm wondering, is that what you mean um, when in your writing you talk about not just returning home, but who's going to call you home? Hmm. I can't say that that was my intention when writing it, though. I I think there's an I can definitely allow for that's a possible reading of it. <laughs> um, I mean, my what I mean by that line is it's quite literal. Like, I want to hear someone's voice call me home. Mm. Like, I'm going to, like, come, come home. That's how I mean that line. And anytime uh. I invoke that, I want the phone to ring one day, right? It's all over. You can come home. But that's just my fantasy. It doesn't work like that. Going back to that first trip um, to Korea, mm-hmm. I, I understand that you, you know, you did do a birth family search, and mm-hmm. you went back to um, at least the uh, the recorded place um, of mm. your abandonment. But in the end, there was very little you could find. These things are all not happening at the same on the same trip. First, I went back to Seoul in that November of 2009, 2010, whatever it was. And I went back and I didn't do any real like prep work or anything. I didn't like sign up for a tour or kind of a you know trip home program. I just went. I didn't know anybody. I didn't know anything. I just went. Like I had... I just knew it was time to go. 
So I like saved my money and, you know, went. And I went for like, not quite three weeks. It was like 18 days, I think. 17, 18 days I was there. Um, and I just wandered around. I did have one friend, she was Korean American, who just moved back like a month before I went. And so we saw each other, but only like a couple of times. She wasn't, we weren't like hanging out a lot. So I was mostly just on my own. Did not speak a word of anything. I mean, I still don't speak Korean because I just don't. I can't. I you know I can do more than I could then, but that's, that is no measure of anything. But at that point I was completely, completely just blank i had no idea of anything i didn't know how anything worked never been there my you know just and i went and i was there and it was powerful my entire life pivots completely on that trip back to south south korea that, that first trip back to seoul everything changed there was no element anywhere in my life that was untouched by that and so after i went back to the states then everything was Everything was different. Everything was just, there was nothing that hadn't moved in some way. Um, and about six months after that, I finally initiated the birth family search from back in the States. And that drug on for about six more months, um, mostly waiting for a single piece of paper saying that there's no information to lurch back and forth across the Pacific. Um, and then that ended. And... I went back the second time to, to Seoul. But no, yeah, the first the first time I went back to Seoul, I did go back to visit the place of where I was supposedly abandoned. And You know, I walked around that station for a long time, thinking, hoping really, that I would remember something. Of course you don't, because your baby, your baby didn't remember anything. Even if there is something to remember, it might not even be true, right? You know, we all know the files have been yeah. thoroughly, thoroughly doctored. Um, but as far as I knew at the time, that's where the story began. And I went back and I don't know what I was hoping to find. You know, maybe I have too much like fiction in my head. You know, you, you go back to the site and it just so happens that there's someone there who's looking at you at the exact same time and you have the freeze frame. And it doesn't, mm. it doesn't work like that, of course, in real life. But yeah. This is a big question, but what do you think your relationship to Korea um, or Koreanness is these days? <laughs> not, not that chestnut. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I am Korean. And you cook Korean food. I cooked Korean uh, food just I've, last night. I've seen it on your Instagram. <laughs> I I made tteokbokki just last night. Oh, um, such as it is, I I make my own kimchi. I yeah, I, I do all kind of things. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm Korean. That's what I got. I'd make a great Italian American. <laughs> <laughs> I've really thought about this a lot. I would have been great at being <laughs> Italian. I think I could have really done that with a lot of panache. But I'm Korean. I don't know if I'm Korean-American. That's more hazy to me, actually. But I'm Korean, and largely because I, when I go 
out there, outside of this apartment, and people learn that I'm not Japanese. It's just easier to tell them I'm Korean than I'm American. American still comes with those like, hmm? Hmm? why do you, you don't look American? It's like, believe you me, I know. <laughs> it's not my first, it's not my first time hearing that. Um, I'm Korean. And there's really not that much nuance to that in that I possess it. The bigger question, I think, is what is Korea's relationship to me? Because we all know that there's this kind of monolithic idea of what it means to be Korean. And if you drift even just a little bit outside of that mainline definition, you become, oh, well, you're not Korean. Or you're not really Korean. Or, fuck that. I'm so tired of that shit. It's like, Koreans have been leaving Korea for, you know, over a hundred years now, if not longer, you know, longer than, you know, much longer than for centuries now, Koreans have been departing Korea for other places and they have become, you know, they didn't, they're not, not Korean. You don't move to China and become Chinese, you know, so you don't leave Korea and become not Korean, but Korea has to allow for more variable forms of what it means to be Korean. The trouble with the question is, that they have only allowed for a single possible answer. So there's an inherent bias to that. Like, if you're not going to allow me to answer the question, with no, not you, but like if Korea doesn't allow for the answering of that question with more nuance that allows for its history and for the things that it has done. And I'm not, it's not just yeah. adoptees. It's all of the different branches of diaspora, you know, the different, you know, populations that have been sent for like different industry like miners in you know mexico or nurses or whatever in germany you know know, the the tendrils are everywhere right we've we've been spread out all over the world and korea has to allow for the fact that those actions those different waves of diaspora have created other answers to the question yeah at some point i I think I get to decide if I'm Korean or not. I don't have to like apply for it. It's not a card that they can take away. And because in the absence of it, I don't have anything else. So, How do you feel these days when you come back to visit Korea? I think at this, at this point, looking at the last year, I was, it just feels nice. I get to see all of y'all and I miss all of y'all all the time. And it's just really good to kind of go home to like my people because there's some strange fluke. You know, a lot of my closest friends live in Seoul. They don't actually live in Tokyo. Yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of good friends. I have good friends. I have close friends here. But like as far as like a hub of like the greatest like density, it's actually in Seoul. Um, and so it's nice to go there and be with everyone. And to have some semblance of that ability to, when I'm with all of you, to like disarm, relax, just really let go and be very comfortable and not have to like be trying to keep up the facade or keep keeping anything. I'm just like, we're just, just, just going to do the thing. And we're going to sit down and we're going to eat and we're going to drink. And, you know, someone's going to yell at someone, maybe. I don't know, but whatever. <laughs> I was surprised. Oh, it's usually me that yells, but. 
or maybe not yell, but like, I don't know, recite some poetry or like, you know, <laughs> tell an epic story. <laughs> Let us all sit upon the ground and tell sad stories of the death of kings. <clears throat> I was really surprised though and impressed that, you know, even here in Seoul, you managed to um, bring people together. Like, you know, you turn up to the, like some barbecue restaurant and there's like 15 people that I don't even know. <laughs> Yeah, and you don't even live here. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people say like, man, can I get some one-on-one time next time? <laughs> <laughs> like, Sorry about that, guys. I was only there for four days. I had to see everybody. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have a deep and beatific reason for that. I just, I just like people. And, you know, as much as I love food, the food is actually just, it's just the kicker. It's just the vehicle to get the people there. Like, I like the people more. The people are the important part of the meal. Like, eating with people, talking to people, laughing, shouting, yelling, drinking, you know, cavorting, you know, all, all, all those things. It's, <clears throat> that's why you have the good food. Because it makes the people better, you know. And for me, the more the merrier to borrow the cliche um yeah would you call yourself an extrovert i'm just curious i have definitely become one Mm. i think for the large percentage of my life i was a deep deep introvert coming here i recognized after i got here like oh god i don't know anyone here i know two people and that's not enough (laughs) I'm rebuilding my life from the ground. And unless I make some social changes, I am toast. Because I know how easy it is to feel lonely and how easy it is to become lonely in a big city. I've done that before. I've learned that lesson. Mm. And if I remain cagey and like a loner, then, oh no, now what? And so I got into the habit of always saying, yes. Like, you going to be there? Yes. Do you want to join? Yes. Like, I'll be there. And just showing up is such an important part. And I did that enough to where I was able to really, really kind of dramatically, and it took a few years, but really dramatically, like, flesh out my social circle. And it just so worked out where it wasn't just here, but, you know, through the vehicle, like, largely Instagram. It was global. You know, now I have friends everywhere. (laughs) They're, you know, most of them are either in New York, Los Angeles, Seoul, or Tokyo. But, you know, it's, there's little pockets everywhere. And and I love that. I think it's been great. It's, and some people have been, it's been such a treat to meet most of these people and to know that I could go to Mexico City and someone's going to take care of me, or I could go to Hong Kong or wherever else, and they're going to pick me up and say, let's go. And then they're going to do for me what I did for them in Tokyo. I I totally feel you. I think, you know, living in a really big city as... um, a kind of foreigner, so to speak, um, you know, in your little apartment, even when, um, yeah, and when the city is 
you know, even somewhat affected by COVID and things. It's, um, I think it's, it's a miserable way to eat when, when you're someone that really likes people and dining mm-hmm. with people. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's like you and Netflix and you're like, I don't know, my crappy mm-hmm. pedal. Yeah. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah. Like what's it? It reminds me, um, my friend, Amy, Amy Fortunato was working on her design thesis and she had written some lines and when I was proofreading it for, I, I actually saved a few of it out of Thank you, Amy. Um, <laughs> but speaking to what we we're just talking about, about eating her line is eating alone. Isn't delicious. A single letter has no sound. And this is referencing in written Korean, a single character by itself can't stand alone, right? Mm. Korean characters always have to be open syllabic blocks. So if you don't have the other elements, you can't make something. The same thing with food. Like you have to, it's an essential element of the meal. If you think about Korean eating culture, Korean eating culture is hardwired to be taken with people. Food is not sold in portions, not traditionally, where a yeah. single person goes in to eat. Yes. So it's very, very, very deeply ingrained in us. I mean, I remember my first trip back, like being turned away at restaurants because I was alone. And she's like, no, like you can't. Why are you, what are you, what's wrong with you, kid? It's like, you can't eat here. Yeah. So. I, um, so I live on this street with these two famous dokboki restaurants. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so dokboki is not really a thing you can, like I tried to turn up when I, um, there alone when I uh-huh. first moved into this apartment and they were just like, oh, yeah, they were just kind of confused yeah. and like shook their yeah. head. You can't really, it's yeah. generally, it starts for, you know, the minimum order is, is dokboki for two. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm not trying to get my sad violin out here. Either. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, um, so something else that I personally relate to in your writing, and and I hope I'm not just projecting here, <laughs> is mm. is a certain sense of, of being a loner um, and or a certain loneliness um, you know, as as a an exile, I guess you know, living in foreign country, and um, and just because of the things that we've been through in our uh, our childhoods, um, hmm. is that something? Do you think that's always kind of been there throughout your life? Yes. And now, also in some way. Well. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna end up giving you more than you asked for, but yes, I think, you know, it's, we've been discussing this actually in therapy recently, um, this topic of like isolation and how deep it's run and how far back it runs. And, mm. you know, every week we discuss it. And even though I lived it and I know it intuitively, it's, it's been interesting to discover just how deep that goes because it really is it's the only constant there is in the story and i remember being 20 
24, 25, somewhere along there. I was standing in the kitchen with someone as she was talking about her kind of childhood. We had very different childhoods in, in many senses, but she had lost, you know, her father when she was young and her mother was estranged. And, you know, she's standing there cooking dinner for the two of us. And she says like, I'm all alone in the world. It's just me. And I remember thinking at the time, like, yeah, that's me too, isn't it? And it never occurred to me to kind of <clears throat> say it just that way, but it was very much the truth. You grow up and you go out into the world and you meet all kinds of adversity, racism, prejudice. You get picked on at school. You get beat up at school. You get you know, turn down service at restaurants, your job interviews, maybe don't break your way. There's all kinds of things. And you want someone to understand it. Someone who's been there before, someone who can act as a guide. And for a lot of people, I suspect the first person they go to is very often their parents. But the problem is that for me and for us, that that's not possible. My parents are white, American. They don't know what it's like to be anything but white and American. They can't, they can't even begin to, they can't even begin to imagine what that feels like. Let's just begin to speak on it. And I think that was such like a kind of omnipresent factor that I don't even think the topic was even broached, right? It's like, it's not even possible. You can't build a bridge over that chasm because it's just too big. You know, the trees do not exist. The engineering does not exist to span that chasm. And you grew up like that and you have no guides, no guideposts. No one to say that, hey, I know this is hard, but I've been here before and I know the way out. You don't have that, right? And you live your entire life without having anyone there for yourself, except for yourself, to lead you, to guide you, to listen to yourself. And you do that a little while. It's hard. You do that for a long time. You do that for years, for decades, for your entire life. And it becomes permanent. It, beco- it gets to the point where that's the only thing you know. You don't know how to not do it like that, right? You don't know how not to be isolated. You don't know how mm-hmm. not to be alone. You don't know, and to, to continue to extend that, you don't know how to have relationships with other people because some of your fundamental sense of what a relationship is and what it does is just not there. You never learned how to do it. There was a window of time where you could have, and it didn't happen. And now, these years later, you're like, fuck, what am I supposed to do? Because you recognize as an adult, like, I need to know how to do this but I can't do it. So now what do I do? And, you know, that's the consequence of what happens of what it means to be alone in that really kind of absolute sense. You know, I've spoken to what it means to be alone within your family, you know, that much more in society, that much more outside in the world, that much more with friendships who there's always something missing, even in childhood friendships where there's always a little bit of difference. or there's a little bit of disconnect because of, you know, all of your, you know, 
pre-existing conditions here. And it just never really kind of breaks your way. And it's just what you, it's what it becomes who you are. It gets woven into, into the very fabric of your being that I am alone. I'm isolated. And then through no fault of your own, your life just tends to flow down this trajectory and it shapes everything. Mm. We've talked a lot about distance in my life in both with friends and like in within like therapy sessions as well. And, you know, I mentioned before, like the hub of like my close friends is in Seoul. Right. And then I also have like hubs in Los Angeles and hubs in New York or Houston or wherever. There's a lot of different cities. And while I do have close friends here, a lot of those friendships have not, still not kind of gotten to the point where there is kind of deep and meaningful as like some of the friendships I have in other places. Um, but why is that? It doesn't make sense, right? Because I see you, Hannah, like once a year, maybe. Mm. I wish it was more than that. But, you know, I see you, you know, every so often. I see other people less frequently than that. And I see people in Tokyo, well, in the before times, um, you know, see them all the time. And yet the friendships have not grown at the same rate. And it's somewhat you have to say, like, why is that? And I think there has been a, it's not a conscious effort, but there's a subconscious effort to maintain some element of distance. And this is, this is a complex thing in that the close friends, there's a physical distance. Mm. The people who are physically close, there's an emotional distance. And so you have this kind of complex stellar geography where you have arrayed everyone around you, but no one's ever actually that close. I like space metaphors a lot. And just because I think it's, for me, they're very useful and very rich, kind of, you know, easy to understand, distinct images. At the center of most galaxies is a supermassive black hole. This is what most of our studies and evidence and scientists have suggested. And around that supermassive black hole, it tends to be the most bright, intense, kind of richest, fertile ground in the galaxy for like star formation and all kind of other exotic kind of stellar bodies and stellar phenomena. But in that small but kind of infinite distance between that really rich ground and the supermassive black hole itself, there's nothing. There's a distance, right? Anything that falls into that distance gets crushed in kind of the ever-deepening gravity of the black hole. And so nothing's ever actually close. Kind of like we said about Seoul in Tokyo. Mm. It's near, but it's far enough. That's not a great way to go through life. (laughs) I recognize that. I recognize that this kind of complex architecture of social architecture I've built around me is fraught with problems and there is a desire to correct for it but this thing was built over the course of many many years and it's not the easiest thing to correct for Mm. and I don't know if I have the answer right now to how to fix it but I recognize that this is kind of what's happened 
you know, the distance and the isolation have kind of gone hand in hand. They've definitely fed each other for sure. And they've reified each other. For what it's worth, um, I also relate. And um, because of growing up as well, I, I moved around such a lot and um, it's constantly making new friends and saying goodbye. And, and now I've also moved to Asia. So I also have this sense of my that, that, that handful of people that I feel truly safe with and understood by, they are currently, um, you know, thousands of miles away. And I'm surrounded by people here and friends here. But I guess, you know, these things take time. And I think for someone like me, that real intimacy takes more time. <laughs> And um, so I also feel that emotional distance sometimes, Mm. um, despite the, yeah, being surrounded by by people. I mean, yeah, for us, relationships are just hard. It's real hard because so much of our kind of primordial understanding of what relationships are and are and supposed to be and not supposed to be is broken. Broken in a deep, ugly, absolute sense of the word. It's broken. And it's broken far enough back to where getting at it and trying to heal it is very, very, very difficult. It's buried under... Because... At this point, it's 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 impacted. It's, you have the side of trauma, but it is because it is both so far back, and then very often untreated, untended to for years, years and years and years. It becomes impacted by other trauma that grows out of that, right? Mm. You know, it's like so the site, you know, ground zero is being abandoned in Seoul in August of 1984. And then I get sent to America where I grew up and I am, there's no one like me. So there's problems with race, problems with ethnicity. You know, I grew up in a Southern white American household, which is like most Southern white American households. Racism is perfectly at home in that household. You know, so I grew up surrounded by like people who were just, they're just racist. There's, there's no pretty way to talk about that other thing. Mm. They're racist. It existed. It's part of it. Grandma, yeah. dad, whatever. So you have mm. that in the home. You have, you know, never, and then you leave the home and it's out there in the home. It's out there in the world and you get beat up for it. You get looked down upon. You get mistreated. You're, you know, you're thought of as being invisible. You're thought of as being asexual. You're thought of being all these things. You're thought of being everything but yourself. The mm. last thing that you're allowed to be is who you are. You have to be everything else before that. And you have to suffer the consequences of everything else before that. And you never get around to actually being who you are. And you have to wonder, like, if I have to live this life where I have to be everything else before I get to who I am, am I just stuck somewhere in the middle of that? And I'm still not quite to where I want to be. You know, if, if, you know, like a mission of self-discovery, am I still on the way there? Because I'm still trying to correct for all these things. And I'm still trying to look back and try to, you know, unearth this very old thing. I don't know if this is helpful. And it, it sounds very 
cliched, but <laughs> I actually, I had a conversation with my therapist recently about how I also do believe, and it sounds, you know, probably sounds dramatic or uh, self-pitying or, or whatever, but um, I do believe that in some ways I'm broken. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And um, and in some ways, I do not think that it is a matter of fixing those parts. I, I think some parts will probably can probably not be healed, and that it's more a matter of becoming more and more aware of these patterns and these mm-hmm. triggers and managing the triggers. But at the same time, and this is the really cliched part. Um, mm. I guess most of us, right, are broken in different ways. Sure. <laughs> and um, and that is, I think, ultimately, you know, that really overused uh, Leonard Cohen quote about um, that's how the light gets in. <laughs> right. Um, I don't really know how to use that word hope properly. Mm-hmm. It's not something I think if you were to, you know, looking at like the things I've written, like in the pub in the record, that word's not there by and large. It's not invoked in the sense of like, I hope, I hope for a better future. I hope for this, I hope for that. If there, if it is invoked, it's usually in the sense of like, there was a false hope or a broken sense of hope or hope that was misplaced. Um, I, so I, I don't utilize that word because sometimes for me it's a trap. I will say though that in the project of trying to make it better, I think I've been, what happens is you get locked in survival mode for a long time, for a longer period of time than frankly, the human body is meant to stay in survival mode. Mm-hmm. You get locked in there and you don't know how to wait for joy out. And I would like to know how to get beyond that, to stop thinking like, I just have to do what I have to do to survive. I just have to claw my way to the next day. Mm. How do I go from that to actually living? I want to be alive. I want to have a life that I live. I don't know that I'm there yet. I don't know if I know when I will be, and I don't even know if I'll ever get there. That's kind of the intention. Because, to be completely frank, like, I'm tired. (laughs) I'm tired of this mess. Like, it's gotten old. It's gotten really old. Truly. It'd be nice to do something else. I've done this for most of my life now, and it'd be nice to do something else with my time. Do you think therapy has been a good decision? 100%. Mm. 100%. You know, for a long time, I didn't want to go. I fought it tooth and nail because when I was younger, when I was like maybe when I was like a early teen, thereabouts, I went to two different counselors, and both times, especially the second time, just went really badly terrible like the second one like maybe it's because i was a minor like he would kind of get feedback to my mom afterwards which is completely unprofessional like he would like kind of say what we talked about and so then she'd bring it up so you know it's all this like violation of like the laws of like trust and confidentiality and that completely soured me on ever doing it ever again and i kind of also convinced myself that it wasn't an option like it's just it doesn't work for people like me. You know, I'd read somewhere in a book that, you know, adoptees suffer from like reactive attachment disorder. And that makes therapy very difficult, if, if not ineffective, completely ineffective. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, 
because everyone wants to be their own expert. You know, I kind of convinced myself that, oh, yeah, definitely, that's me. I have that. It's, a, it's not possible. I can't do therapy. Until a year ago, again, I'm 36 years old now. A year ago, um, I was kind of, I was kind of involved with someone. We'd been talking and <laughs> it was a complicated relationship. Um, but at some point, somewhat stormy moment, she said, you have to do this. Mm. You just have to do this. And I think I was finally in a vulnerable enough place. And I guess in a sense, I trusted her enough to say, you know what, you're right. I did it. And I mean, up until just prior to that, I was still completely against it, completely resistant. This was happening in August, September. Just in May, I'd had kind of like a, kind of not really like falling out, not a falling out, but I'd had kind of a heated exchange with my very, the girl who's my very, very close friend. You know, she's my friend Yanni in Toronto. She, you know, she's, she's the person that knows me the best. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, she, if there's a, she's like my best friend, right? And we'd had kind of an exchange about like the consequences that I don't think I realized that my mental health and my poor management of my mental health had on those around me. And it was kind of an eye opening thing to be sure that I, I was not fully aware of how I was affecting other people as I kind of like zipped in and out of kind of chronic long term depression. And it was a powerful moment. I think it definitely kind of paved the way for me agreeing some months down the line, but I still was very against it. And But then a few months passed by and things are, you know, changing and I'm in a different place somewhat. And someone says, you have to do this. And I said, you know, you're right. And I began the endeavor of getting in touch with people. I talked to my Young, who's also an adoptee, he's also, but he's also a clinically, clinically trained therapist. And he put me in touch with someone, and she's been enormous. Mm. She's so helpful. We have a great rapport. It's the point. It's like, it's not, it's not even a chore. It's like, oh, I have to go to therapy. It's like, I really look forward to the session every week because it's, you know, it's very interesting to me. And it's very, it's, I enjoy getting to talk about the things that we discuss and it's very helpful to me. It's difficult. There are some weeks, you know, it's emotional. That's very charged and it definitely puts you in uncomfortable places, but it having someone guide you through and my therapist is very good at what she does. And she, she seems to have a very good innate understanding of how to walk me through things to keep me both kind of on the path of inquiry, but also without like putting me in too much danger at the same time, mm. we're able to really get at some of these things. And, and it's been a long, long, long road. And there's still much, much more to do. Um, but I'm always grateful for it. And I'm always glad that I did it. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, doctor. <laughs> What would you say to people? Um, I'm just curious because, you know, I think a lot of people are not willing to make the effort and invest the money and 
you know, go through that discomfort of confronting, you know, these dark places within yourself. Um, mm mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, like, if you had another adoptee friend who was like, oh, it's really expensive and, oh, you know. Right. I mean, the expense is real. I mean, that's, that's, that's always something you have to consider. But if you're in a position where you can, you probably should. Mm. You probably should. I, for a long time, did it on my own. I did okay. I survived. I stayed alive. I affected change, but got to the point where I couldn't do it on my own. There's no shame in asking for help. I know it's hard for people who are used to doing everything on their own, for people that are used to being the only person in the room who understands what it's like to live like that. It's hard to depend on others, to, to have that kind of trust, because there's a lot of trust inherent in a good relationship to a therapist. And those are not the easiest things in the world for us to do. And it's hard to find a good therapist. Yeah. It's hard to find the right match, right? But given all of those different variables, I think if it's a plausible possibility, I think it's something that people should do. Yeah. It's been helpful for me. I think it'd be helpful for a lot of people. Um, Ryan, did you have anything else before our um, rapid-fire question segment? <laughs> Lightning round. Oh, I, had, I had so many thoughts as, as, as you were talking. and um, mm-hmm. The way that you write about sharing food and you use words like glee, mm-hmm. I think, mm-hmm. was in there. You said, I think, we, we were free. Like these really like powerful, mm-hmm. emotive ways in which you describe like the sensation of and the excitement, I guess, of, of seeking out food and, and sharing it with others. And yeah, I was just, I was interested in, in that link between freedom and, and food or sharing food. I was wondering if you, I guess, yeah, I invite you to say more about that. If, if anything comes to mind, the link between freedom and food. Mm. Huh? That is an interesting question. I, Hmm. I think for me, and this is speaking only for myself, I don't know about other people. I know everyone has a different relationship to food and the table. But I think for me, I just feel the most comfortable when I'm eating, when I'm eating with other people. I think that I think that's kind of the persona that I inhabit the most comfortably. And so I feel the most relaxed and the most free to be who I am when I'm sitting down with others to kind of eat and drink. And you also mentioned that um, your love for certain foods and food cultures is is very pure and unconditional. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I spend, this will be both ridiculous to hear and not a shock all at the same time. I spend a not insignificant amount of time in my head Throughout the day, like I could be working or doing something else. I spend a lot of time just thinking about stuff I want to eat. And like in a very (laughs) very specific sense, it's like I'll just be there like parked in my mind, like on like like babka. Like, oh man, how wonderful would it be to just have like a fresh 
hot babka, just and like a nice glass of like milk or something like that. And all like that time, like sitting on the bench in front of Resin Daughters in Manhattan with like the babka you just bought, and like it's like flaky and sugary and like a little bit like greasy because all the fat and mm. butter in it. It's just like it's a totally ridiculous thing to be gnawing on this like brick of babka, which is clearly meant for more than one person. And you're just going at it like it's all yours. And wouldn't that be nice? And, you know, the day is going by around me. Like the kids are running around or something like that. Or, like I'm on the train. Or, or even like, you know, I grew up in I grew up in Louisiana. This is, I think it's important to say. It's like if you grew up in Louisiana, it's one of the most common topics of dinner conversation is food. It's like while you're eating, you're talking about what's red blood. You know, you're talking about every time you've ever eaten the thing you're eating right now. Like, yeah. <laughs> Man, this is some really co- good cornbread. But you know who had really good cornbread? Giacomo's. I remember that time we went to Creole kind of Charles, and they had that cornbread. And you, know, you, just, you go into every possible manifestation of cornbread, both good and bad, that you've ever visited upon your life. And then you also talk about what you had for lunch that day. And then you talk about what you're going to have for lunch tomorrow or dinner the next night. You're always thinking about talking about food in this kind of like broad, multi-point temporal kind of sense where you're always thinking about the forwards and backwards and all the different examples of food. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of no mistake, no accident that I kind of ended up in kind of the kind of genre of writing that I, I've done. Cause it's just, it's just, it's very natural. Um, and I don't even know if I answered your question. I'm sorry. I just started talking about food. It's just, it's just, it's just the easiest thing in the world. Every now and then I'll be at dinner with someone and be like, wow, like I could just listen to, listen to you talk about food all the time. Like I could do it all the time. <laughs> Let's be sure. If you don't, if you don't shut me up, I will keep going. On that note, I have not had babka or um, cornbread in the longest time. Oh, they're uh, both no. very hard to come by in Seoul. <laughs> I think, yeah, I haven't had cornbread in a long time. Um, there's a there's a few babka around here, but they're more like they're not real babka. They're kind of like. Baked goods, dreaming about what it's like to be a babka. <laughs> but real babkas are hard to come by. Usually I get them like brought in when I have visitors coming from New York. It's mm. like, depending on which city you fly into Tokyo from, you're given a different set of requirements. <laughs> <laughs> Offerings to uh, the food god. Yeah. You have to pay tribute to Rome, right? Um yeah, otherwise you'll be refused service upon entry and you have to find your own restaurants, make your own reservations. <laughs> yeah. All right. Will we jump into I was going to say, our... on that note, we do the, yeah. uh, the rapid fire, uh, yes. don't think too hard, first thing comes to your mind. And we can probably <laughs> skip some of them because this is one or two that we've managed to cover already. But, okay. All right. Ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So what would be your last meal on earth? That's probably a hard question, but first thing that comes to mind. 
It's either Popeye's fried chicken or barbecue. Okay. Those are the two things that I could eat every day, all day, and be perfectly happy. Probably barbecue. Probably barbecue. But I do love Popeye's. <laughs> I love Popeye's a lot. I was on a first-name basis at the Popeye's near my house when I was living in Louisiana. And what's your current favorite bread for morning toast? Mm, coconut jam. Kaya. Mm, Singaporean really coconut jam. And what is your favorite way to eat eggs if you could choose just one? Either it has to be raw or fried. Like most food I eat, it's either raw or fried. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. A restaurant dining pet peeve if you can choose just one. <laughs> <laughs> That's not fair. There are so many I could choose from. <laughs> oh, gosh. You should have you should have asked this question earlier when I had more like ability to answer at length. Because I was just going forever and ever about this. <laughs> Mind your manners. <laughs> like you're not an animal. You know? Um you told me not you told me not to think too hard about this and now <laughs> now I'm like panicked thinking too hard about this, but trying to have a succinct answer. Restaurant dining pet peeve. Know what you want to eat when you go into a restaurant. Very often, I am in charge of the ordering because <laughs> I'm with people who maybe don't speak Japanese, they don't read Japanese, so the menus are just total, totally mysterious to them. And I'll say, is there anything you don't eat? Or, are you hungry? <laughs> like, and if, the, if to the first question it's, anything's fine, or the answer to the second question, yeah, I'm super hungry. And then I'm like, okay, green light. I will order. <laughs> and if, when that order hits the table, you say like, oh, wow, that's so much food. Oh, I don't really eat that. Or, oh, I'm actually not that hungry. I'm like, then why did you say it was okay? <laughs> now I have to be responsible for all this business. Yeah, there. I have many, many instances where this has happened. You know, it's like I was in as a sushi dinner with some people once, and like this one guy. Sorry, I don't remember anything else about you, guy. But <laughs> <laughs> he had heard about shirako, which is like I don't remember what it's called in Korea. It's like cod sperm roe. Like it's, it's in Korea, they make a stew out of it. In Japan, they eat it like either deep fried or as like a sashimi or sushi. Um, and it's yeah, it's just like a sack of cod sperm. And he'd heard about it. And he's like, yeah, man, like, I mean, I love to eat everything. I'm really adventurous. Yeah, I'll try anything. And it's like, my friend said, when you go to Japan, you really have to try shirako. I'm like, do they have it here? I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll order you something. Like, yeah, yeah, we're going to try it. And the time it took me to order it and then to bring it out in that very short window of time, he thought about it too much and he psyched himself out. And as soon as it landed on the table and he looked at it and he saw this little, you know, gelatinous, jiggly bowl of like codges, he couldn't do it. And like, he like picked up his chopsticks and like went down and he's like, I, I can't do this. I'm like, motherfucker. No, I have to eat this. I don't even like this. I didn't want it. So then I had to just... So, yeah. Mm, out of respect for the restaurant, you just 
you just finish your food. Yeah. Yeah. Finish your food. Mm. That's another thing. Finish your food. <laughs> I recognize as someone who over orders as a, you know, matter of course, mm. finishing your food is not always the simplest thing in the world, but you finish your food. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love how we snuck at least two pet peeves into that. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> there are, I promise you there are a lot more. Okay. Next. Um, a favorite Korean food. Oh gosh, the things, the things that I want to eat that I think about all the time that I want to eat but can't. Chokbo, kalbi jim, kamjutang, and yukkejang. Some of those things you can get all of those things in Tokyo, but it's not quite. It's, it's not quite the same. It's just better in Seoul. It's better in South Korea. Those those are the things I really want. All right. Next one is favorite, but maybe favorite or most effective hangover food. Probably ramen, Mm. salty, soupy, noodles, carbs, or something like a really dense sandwich. Um, Next, what about food for a broken heart? Ooh. Well, let me let me look here into my not so far back memory. Um, for broken specifically, it it actually doesn't matter. It's not like I'm gonna go eat like a hamburger, or chocolate chip cookies. Like for me, if I if I'm broken hearted, I don't eat with people. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's the food with broken heart. Or you know, barbecue and fried chicken. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final question. What are you planning to eat for dinner tonight? Because I know you've been planning it. Probably some kind of pasta. Was that a letdown? No, no. <laughs> um, I actually have to go to the grocery store after we finish. But um, unless I get especially lazy and brave and decide to venture to a restaurant, which I probably won't do because I'm still skittish about eating at restaurants. Mm. I'll probably just come home and make some kind of pasta. That's all. Sounds good. It's a quiet Sunday night. I'm going to work tomorrow. Well, thank you so much. No, no, thank you all for the opportunity. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, really, really nice to, to meet you and... Um, yeah, it's nice to meet you too. You know? <laughs> learned, learned a lot, and yeah, I'm really like a huge fan of your writing, and I'm also like super, super pleased that this was also another opportunity to to read your stuff. So yeah, thank thanks for. Arigato. Yeah, for both of those things. No, yeah, thank yeah. you for the opportunity. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast. We're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating and or write us a review.